Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 97. This week's episode, Board Gamers Anonymous Year in Review. We'd like to thank our Patreon backer, Christopher Shorter, for backing this episode. Thanks to Christopher, we're all able to get to the table this week. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. Welcome to the episode, everyone. We're so glad to have you here back at the table with us. We have an outstanding episode. We have our final episode for 2015 BGA's Year in Review. I know you've been waiting for it, and we're so glad to be back with you again this week. So as you know, we moved to a one-month format in order to be able to produce more content out there for each and every one of you. So we want to let you know about our upcoming release schedule for the podcast. What we're looking at doing is releasing the last Sunday of each month. So the next episode you'll be listening to will be released January 31st, 2016, and that will be BGA's prediction for 2016. So you really want to get to that episode because Drew and I will be finally fighting out and seeing resolving 
everything that happened in 2015, and we'll be making some great predictions for 2016. Now, also, we're going to have some new content for you. So before episode 98 comes out, we're going to put some of our content on YouTube. Now, maybe you've had the opportunity to check out our YouTube channel and check out our little trailer video for the podcast, and you get to see us and some of the games that we play and all the fun that we have. Well, we're going to throw some more content up there for you. We want you to check out our YouTube channel, and you'll be able to find out about all of that on our Facebook, Twitter, all of our social media, and especially our website, BoardGamersAnonymous.com. So please keep in contact with us as time goes on. We are still active. We're still listening for you. We still love getting your emails and your comments and your and your Twitter posts because that means a lot to us. And the more we get, the more we can put out there for you. Well, that said, let's get on to the episode. Shout it from the tabletops. <laughs> Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. Well, guys, it is great to be sitting around the table with you. We only get to do this once a month anymore. So uh, it's a lot of fun. I always enjoy chatting about uh, so many things in the hobby. The first thing I wanted to talk about with you guys is the results of the auction we had in a partnership with Jamie Stegmeyer and uh, a number of other great uh, podcasts and blogs out there where he was putting some of his great uh, product uh, material for auction to benefit our favorite charity, Extra Life, and uh, many other charities. Um, Anthony and Daniel, you guys have been doing most of the work this year in uh, raising money for Extra Life, and uh, you know how this went. Let us know. What, what was the result? What happened? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Jamie actually uh, you know, hit us up about this at Gen Con, and it, he's run this auction you know, the last couple of years, and the whole idea is he puts up something really big and awesome from their collection. So this year it was the Viticulture Tuscany Collector's Edition. Um, and then for... I think 10 different podcasts, videos, blogs, like you said, it assigns one of those for each and then people can come on and bid. So anybody out there who gave us a thumb, who went on there and bid, um, I sent this out via Twitter and email and everything else. Unfortunately, we didn't have an episode out that week, but anybody out there who, who did go do all that, thank you. Thank you very much for participating and sharing that, especially if you bid on the auction because it's awesome. All this is for charity. Even if you didn't bid on ours, um, hopefully you gave us a thumb. Um, but in the end, it was fantastic. I think Jamie said they raised more this year than they have the last two years combined, something over $4,000 for all these charities. And for Extra Life in particular, we raised over $800 from this event. So we had two different people there who uh, donated money to Extra Life, um, Joe and Gonzalo. Thank you to both of you. Very, very cool. Very awesome what you did. And this was great. And it was just, it's a good opportunity to help a lot of different charities because there was a different one for each of the ten, different 10 different um, outlets. And at the same time, got to do something cool with one of the really nice guys in the hobby. So it was fun. If you were involved, thank you very much for, for doing that. And if you weren't, you know, check back next year because this is something Jamie does every year. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you, Jamie, for including us in this fundraising effort. That was a lot of fun. Now that we have you guys all at the table, had a couple of topics that came up in the last couple of weeks that I would love to talk with you about because I think they're important in the hobby to everybody who's a part of it. One of the things was something I read on Reddit, the great, uh, strong Reddit board game community. Somebody wrote in about Black Friday. They were looking forward to buying games on Black Friday because everybody had sales. Everybody lowered prices on their games, and they were looking forward to uh, getting a copy of Catan from Mayfair Games. So they, they were hoping that their favorite online store would have a good deal. Well, come the Thanksgiving holiday and the specials and the sales and 
he found out that not only did Catan not go down in price, but it went up at his favorite store. And he was shocked. He didn't know why an online store, especially, would be raising prices. So he, he dug into this. And in fact, the online store replied to a lot of uh, comments that people had and uh, said that this was due to a policy that was set by Mayfair Games, What basically what we call in the hobby a price floor, where there is a minimum price that people can sell Mayfair games, certain Mayfair games, um, or if they didn't meet that price or go above, it would they wouldn't have the, the privilege of uh, selling their games. This sort of policy has hit different online stores different ways. One, uh, the, the stores that were constantly undercutting, underbidding, um, even the local stores, the brick-and-mortar stores, they had to bring their prices up to be more competitive, to allow, on, to allow the brick-and-mortar stores to be more competitive. Now, the other thing that this policy did, it caused some stores, uh, online stores, I think Starlet Citadel is the one I, I recognize the most, uh, a Canadian vendor who would not go along with this policy. Simply for them, it was uh, there were, wasn't enough details. They didn't know really where they stood. Uh, Mayfair just said, this is what we want, and they didn't provide any more information. Um, so there are some stores that aren't selling Mayfair games, at least one we know of, and others have had to raise their prices. The question is, are, are price floors fair? I mean, is it really part of the capitalistic way where you tell people how much they have to, to put a price? Shouldn't we allow online stores to set whatever price they want, even if they want to lose money? And really, what is the purpose of setting a price floor? Price floors, this kind of infuriates me, honestly. This is, this is ridiculous. I know the, the, the explanation they give, right, is to prevent online stores from undercutting brick and mortars or something like that, right? But that's just ridiculous. First of all, they already do that. They don't need any help, or and you're not going to stop that practice. Secondly, if the... Online stores undercut your local brick and mortar and you're not willing to pay that extra price to keep the brick and mortar open, it closes. That's how the economy works, right? I love my local brick and mortar game store. Back when Myriad was around, I spent way too much money because I felt that every week I went there, I had to buy something if I wanted them <laughs> to stay open, right? Because right? if you want them to still be there tomorrow, you need to pay for that. Yeah. And the best – the only thing I can really think about here is that they're trying to keep people from realizing that like 90 percent of their games are just junk. Right? If Catan starts going for $2 right, a piece, that, that's going to hurt the brand. right? It's going to make it look like their games are low rent, which quite frankly, other than like Caverna, I oh, can't man, think of yeah. anything from the Mayfair catalog that's remotely exciting to me. Um, now, I'm sure there are other people who find these things exciting, what have you. But I think this is honestly just an attempt to m try to maintain their brand and avoid being pushed. Uh, you know, Catan's sort of on that on that edge, right? About to become something like Monopoly. It's about yes. to leave the hobbyist game area and enter one of those, oh, God, that game. But But those are two different games. Caverna is like a blue chip property. Yeah, if you want it to... Is. If you want to price it at 100 bucks, okay, it's it's the top of the line. But Catan is now the go-to gateway game. It should be accessible. The mass public should be able to just walk into a store, put down or just anywhere, put down some a, a little bit of money and get it. You want everyone to have Catan. Don't yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, 
I mean, I, I get that, and I agree with you there. That, but then, you know, my view is, you know, Confirmed is the only real game from their their catalog that interests me again, right? It's the only one that I think is really like a great game, and so that one, you know, as an exception. But the rule for me seems that a lot of what Mayfair puts out is barely hobby game, right? It, it's it's barely good enough to sit on the shelf next to these other classics, right? Especially Catan. And so I think they might be worried about their brand, right? Because if they start being thought of as a trashy brand, and one way they could be thought of that is because if people are selling their games for $2 a pop because they bought a couple hundred copies and no one wants to buy them anymore. I, I, you, that's a, an extreme example. I don't think it would ever go that low. But um, it could because, you know, stores always practice the the – the concept of a loss leader. You have one game or, or one item that's popular. You put a low price. You, you're willing to lose money just to get people into the store, whether it's an online or brick and mortar. A loss leader is an accepted part of doing business. So, yeah, you have to ask Mayfair, why won't you let Catan be that loss leader for some stores? Because that's going to draw attention. And maybe it's because they're using it that way to, to get people in to buy other games and not really Catan. It's just being used as a tool, a marketing tool instead of a end in, in itself. Um, Anthony, any thoughts? Is it really going to help brick-and-mortar stores, this policy of Mayfair's? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard to tell. I mean, for me, I mean, trying to completely remove the uh, any problem I have with it with price flooring in general as a policy, which I'm also with Daniel, I'm not for. Um, but if I think about it in terms of a brick and mortar store, if I knew that a game cost the same amount online as it did in the store, I would probably go buy it in the store for that reason, if I wanted to buy it. Um, that said, with Caverna, I did not buy that game for a long time because of this policy, because I didn't want to spend full price on a $100 game because I couldn't afford it. So when I think I finally got it on sale at some point on Amazon, yes, I know Amazon, but this is the only place you could get this on sale from like a third-party vendor, I think, for 60-something dollars, which is what it would be on most online game stores if they were allowed to discount it. Um, that's my story of how I got Caverna, and I think <laughs> a lot of people would do the same thing, and they might be holding themselves back a lot on a lot of sales for those bigger, higher-tier games. Games like Catan, like this is the problem with Mayfair in general. And I don't necessarily agree that all their games are not hobby worthy necessarily. Although there are a lot of issues in terms of component quality and some games are a little more rushed than others, but they've built everything around Catan because they can. So they don't take a, a lot of risks They're I'm not going to say lazy, but they don't do as many fun, interesting, exciting things. You don't see a company like Mayfair coming out with pandemic legacy type games that are just pushing the boundaries of the hobby because they don't have to, they have Catan. And so they're also using that Catan excuse to implement this kind of policy, which in turn just kind of keeps them in that position. So they're just—they seem to be just interested in promoting the brand. Um, their their publicity stunts, like the the largest game of Catan that they yeah. had. At, uh, yeah, I mean Mayfair might as well just see Catan games. So there's no reason, which I find funny too, because it's not—it's not like. Mayfair originated Catan. They just happen to be the, the distributor of it in North America. Um, and it, I'm sure they've made a lot of money off of it. Otherwise, they wouldn't put this much effort into protecting that brand. But that's my take on it. I don't think it's a good thing. Price flooring in general, I think, is a horrible thing because it stifles competition and also creates this weird situation where stores are put in a bad position um, where they have to make tough decisions or just not carry a game that they want to be able to have for people. But it's... 
Yeah, it's, I don't know, it always struck me as a weird thing because they're the only company that does this that I'm aware of. And my, my view is if they're doing it to help the brick-and-mortar store, it's not going to help. That uh, I can't see that as justification for having an online license policy. Um, I, I sort of agree with Daniel. It's up to the, the hobbyists, the gamers, to support the local brick-and-mortar store and do their gaming there, buy product there, keep them alive, and let the market figure things out between online and brick-and-mortar um, and just let the gamers game. Um, the second point I wanted to, uh, cover actually grew out from another Reddit thread. Um, there was a Kickstarter some months ago that was a Kickstarter from the summer. Actually, it funded in June. Um, and it's basically an anime style game. So they successfully funded back in June and then pretty much went silent. Nobody heard anything from them until recently. They had an interesting story to tell because they were approached by a company in Japan who accused them of plagiarism. Uh, violating IP on some anime characters. And then they had to just stop and perform due diligence and show the originality of all these characters. They had to go through all this time and expense. And to the, the company's credit in Japan, it wasn't a money grab. It was a legitimate complaint. They were satisfied with the, the information that Avatar Games brought forward. And now Avatar is moving forward with producing zero agents just a little bit behind schedule. I can see why this happened because there is nothing new in games. Maybe you guys can correct me if you think there, there's still room for innovation, but are we just going to be seeing more of these challenges in the future? Because there's very little true originality. Um, there's just going to be accusations, hey, you stole my idea. What if somebody wants to do another legacy-type game? Is Rob Davio going to go after them and say, hey, legacy is my concept? Is there any originality left, or are we just going to have to all get along in the same crowded uh, field? Yeah, I mean, I don't think this is unique to board games. I mean, it's, as long as there's been pop culture and copyright law in general, this is a problem. If it's a problem, I mean, I don't even think it's necessarily a problem. There needs to be a system in place to protect people who hold intellectual property, especially, honestly, especially in like an industry like board gaming where usually the companies and people who hold that IP are smaller. And so if somebody comes in and takes advantage of that, um, it's going to hurt them a lot more than, let's say, if someone borrowed something from a big company. There's actually something that came up recently on a Kickstarter that I was watching, a game called Loon Architects that kind of reused a lot of the materials from Glenmore. Hmm. Um, he originally reached out to the designer and asked if it was okay. And then it just became this whole weird thing because while the designer didn't really have a problem with it, he didn't own the rights. Ravensburger did. And it became this weird thing of like, does he have the right to make this game that borrows a lot of elements from this other game? Is it an IP issue? And in the end, in the U S it probably isn't because it's game mechanics, but then ah, it's like yeah. a moral issue. And that was the big argument people were having is morally, is it okay to borrow these things? I think that's something we'll see a lot more of as uh, the, the the industry kind of expands and more games come out. Is is it okay for people to just take a game, reskin it, retheme it, and then say it's just we just borrowed the mechanics? That's totally fine, especially in an industry that has for so long has just been a handshake industry. It's going to change, right? And so on the IP front, that's I mean I think that that's something that happens all the time. But on the game front, I think it's going to probably happen more often. 
whether it goes to like lawsuits and all that, who knows? I guess it depends on how big these companies get. I guess I was going to ask you guys, if you were creating an original game, how much effort would you make to be sure you weren't stepping on someone else's legal toes? Or would you just say, oh, it's not worth the bother? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot you got to be careful about. But I think mechanics are actually going to be relatively safe. And this is one of the things that makes board gaming so weird, right, is that it's a lot of the IP isn't really clear. But I think mechanics would fall under the category of an algorithm or a way to solve a problem, and those cannot be copyrighted so far as I'm aware, right? You can copyright an instantiation of an algorithm, right, a particular form of it, but you can't copyright the algorithm itself. But I'll give you an example. Um, this, this really seemed to come down to art. Since Zero Agent was a game that, that looked like anime, it copied the anime style – so in Japan, anime is everywhere, and they have hundreds, if not thousands, of recognizable characters in anime there. That's a minefield. How can you create something truly original if there's so much out there? And would you just decide, hey, I think I'll just stick with historical characters because they can't sue? I don't know. Um, well, I think the issue we're running into, and we've talked about this a lot, is the intellectual properties. Now, when it comes to artwork, these intellectual properties are pretty distinct, and that's where you run into trouble. So oftentimes we'll kind of joke around, but the idea is legally distinct. Now, Zombicide is probably the best example of this because Cool Mini or Not puts out these campaigns with all these stretch goals, and then they have these legally distinct characters that you know really well, but they're changed just enough that artistically you can recognize them, but they're not a copy of something else. So, for example, in music, you can play rock, and you could say, you know, we're going to have a lead guitar, we're going to have a bassist, we're going to have drums. You can talk about the mechanics. You can have all the mechanics, but you can't copy word for word. There's certain things you just can't right. copy that's unique, and I guess it's in some ways it's like the definition of pornography. You know when you see it. <laughs> so when you look at a character, especially something that's someone's bread and butter, that's going to run into run into some problems. But mechanics, I think the kind of ethical issue here or the family issue that we get into with you know the board game industry is you should give credit where credit's due. If you're going to use someone else's mechanic, I think that p- people are pretty much cool with that as long as you're not taking the whole game. And if you re-implement it in an interesting way, and if you give credit, I think everyone's good with that because that's pretty much all of board gaming. But if you take a name, if you take an image, then you run into some problems. Yeah. It's sort of hard. You made a good point. You want to suggest another image. You just can't copy it. I, I think of Fifty Shades of Grey as a good example. You want people to think, oh, these are the characters from Twilight without actually using the characters from Twilight. Uh, which would create trouble, true, create legal true. issues. I don't think so. that Fifty Shades of Grey is a good example for anything, true. <laughs> Not even a movie or anything <laughs> yeah. else. It's just, oh, let's just man. forget that ever happened. It, it's a good example of how to walk the line without getting getting into trouble. Um, they just got in trouble with the critics, that's all. Uh, final, the, the final bit of news I wanted to come up with. Uh, in New York, where, we, uh, where our little uh, podcast got its start, they love uh, – the attorney general in New York just loves going after wrongdoers. Uh, they tried shutting down these two fantasy – football fantasy groups, DraftKings and FanDuel. And don't try to tell me you don't know what they are because they're on commercials everywhere, on every channel. Um, fantasy football. They wanted to shut them down because the attorney general said they were gambling sites. 
basically. I've read a couple different web pages that liken fantasy football to board games. This was what was striking. One person likened it to an RPG campaign where you're using linebackers instead of elves. Another one said it's like Catan, where you're trying to search for marketing inefficiencies. My take on that is I think fantasy football is somewhat similar to uh, card games like Magic the Gathering, where you're drafting and trying to, to come up with a stronger team than the other player. Um, so there are some gambling elements, but I guess we should – I wanted to put this question to you. Could you call fantasy football a game uh, because there are game-like elements to it? Do you think we should do an entry in Board Game Geek for it? I mean, it's a game. It's not a board game, but it's a game. It's not a game I'm interested in playing, but it's a game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did it once. Um, I think if you do like a season, it's definitely more skill-based. Like, it takes a lot of work. Uh, I think the main issue with like what New York's having a problem with is like the one-day Fantasy League type thing, where it's it's totally luck. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen the John Oliver piece on this from like a couple weeks ago. Yeah. But, like, he tore it apart, and... It's hard to argue with that with his perspective. It's like especially when like nobody wins money on these sites at all, unless they're like some computer super genius. Um but the game as a whole, like if you do a sixteen week league, it's pretty fun. You get to hang out with people and it is skill based. Like the people who put more time in did win. So You ever seen the um uh, the T V show The League? <laughs> yeah. That's great. <laughs> it's funny, but it, it does show you the social aspects of this too. It's a social game. Also, if you do it with friends, then you know if you're going to lose money, you're losing it to someone you already know. Um, I also wanted to liken this to uh, a kind of game that I played for a dozen and a half, uh, Stratomatic Baseball. And I also played Stratomatic Football. Those are, those are sports sims that are actually listed on Board Game Geek. So I think there's, there, there's a place for sports games. We don't talk about them a lot. As a podcast, we don't see it talked about a lot online, but, you know, sports, sport is a game, and we can make a game of it. If you can do it and have fun and not lose a lot of money, go for it. Thanks for joining me around the table, guys. I really like this. I'm going to hand this back to Chris now. I don't know, Drew. Those people seem like a bunch of nerds playing games with statistics and flowcharts and Excel spreadsheets. Come on. You know, uh, when I was doing Stratomatic, uh, I was chatting with this one guy who was a real math geek, and he was bragging about, oh, he could just go on the, the stock market and just plug his algorithms in there and just make all sorts of money. Math geeks think, you know, they're the you know, the top, and I bet that's who's winning a lot of the money sure. on FanDuel and DraftKings. They're just math geeks. They're ruling the world. They are, and that's, that's why they're able to kind of win at Texas Hold'em, and that's why they're great at – board games and i just like the fact that sports jocks are finally coming over to the geeky nerdy side which they should have always been because you know they're a bunch of grown adults that are wearing face paint and wearing costumes from players and now doing gigantic strategy games so yeah they're one of us man a foot yeah sports fans are heavily into cosplay That's it. definitely <laughs> <laughs> and now our acquisition disorders. Acquisition disorders? That's crazy. Only needs the base game. Nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game, the expansion, and the promos, and of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base game, the expansion, the promos, and the upgraded components. See? So for acquisition disorder this week, it is a mega acquisition. It is a year-long 
acquisition. It's a year of acquisitions. And for this week, we wanted to boil it down to the 2015 acquisition disorder. Maybe it was that game that you really, really wanted and finally got. Or maybe it was that game that you still really want but just can't get your hands on yet. So for this feature, we're going to talk about those acquisition disorders in 2015 that really kind of spoke to the gamer in us and really wanted to get us out gaming. So Anthony, for 2015, what was your acquisition disorder? Oh, man. Uh, So I look back over the list of what I've shared on the podcast, acquisition disorder-wise, this year, and I've purchased a handful of them. And by handful, I mean most of them. (laughs) I have a problem. (laughs) The one that I noticed, though, that came up the most, that we talked about the most, and also was on our most anticipated games list, pretty high, and then I purchased, and I still have not played, and I still really want to play. So therefore, it is still on my acquisition disorder list, plus I purchased it, plus we've talked about it repeatedly is Pandemic Legacy. The fact that it's now sitting at number three on Board Game Geek and that I'm still avoiding videos where they discuss it or podcasts where any type of spoilers might come out. And then I've read through the rules and I have everything set up and I have managed to keep myself from looking at any stickers or anything. And I just haven't been able to quite organize the group just right yet to get it started. This is still very high on my list. And considering a handful of other games have come in since that one, uh, including one that uh, Daniel's going to mention later, I this is still has to be the acquisition disorder of the year for me, and it might roll into 2016 at this rate. But at the moment, it's it's got to be Pandemic Legacy. Now, Anthony, which which spoiler would huh. be more devastating to you if somebody revealed Pandemic Legacy or the new Star Wars movie? Oh, Star Wars. Because I'm actually going to see that. That's, <laughs> <I> <laughs> that would be more devastating. OK, <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, don't ruin that. Um, pandemic, I would just, I mean, I'd be really upset, but I've, I've had it for a couple months now and I haven't gotten to play it yet. <laughs> you haven't peaked yet. No. And I've been waiting for star Wars for three years. So, <laughs> oh wow. yeah, I mean, don't, don't spoil any of it. Either of those, please. But, all right, Daniel, what about you? What was on yours? Well, uh, for my acquisition disorder of the year, I kind of wanted to talk about the one that I feel like I got the most bang for my buck out of, uh, and that is blood rage. I decided I was going to back this game pretty early on. I was pretty pumped about it. It's, eh, you know, great-looking game, great-looking minis. Already looked like a pretty complete game, well worth the cost when you started in. By the end of their campaign, though, this thing was packed with just so many extras that when you're unpacking this box, it just it was like one of those little magician scarves, you know, where there's just it just keeps coming and coming and coming. And it's like, oh well, and here's another. Very large, well-detailed miniature, and another. Oh, and here's the main game box, and here's an expansion box. Oh, and here's a free expansion box. Oh, and don't forget this other miniature. Like it just, it just kept coming. There's so much game there. I can't imagine ever using it all, but I'm really willing to give it a shot. Uh, and it also, I think, it looms large in my mind a bit because I haven't gotten a chance to get it to the table. So you know, I'm getting a little, a little, you may, I'm not quite angry, but I feel like there's another emotional term that could describe <laughs> what I'm feeling. It's not quite anger. It's a little more than anger. Um, um, yeah, I think rage, rage, rage is the good term there. Yeah, uh, that that was a little too much there, but oh well. <laughs> you guys can deal with it. Uh, but yeah, so blood rage was. It was one of those things that I was, I was, you know, I got on. I was like, this is probably going to be a pretty good buy. And by the time it came out and, you know, you got all the Kickstarter extras and all that stuff, I was 
It's the most vindicated I've been from purchasing a board game in a long time. And I haven't even played the thing yet. So the, that, that's my uh, acquisition disorder of the year. Good thing you weren't disappointed in that or we would have really seen some rage. <laughs> that, is, that is certainly true. What kind of rage? I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm, maybe some blood rage. Maybe some blood rage. Maybe some <laughs> bit of blood rage. I had, a, blood rage. I had a little bit of blood rage waiting for my copy to show up. Yeah. Oh, such a great game. Such a great buy. Well, that's uh, my acquisition sort of the year. How about you, Drew? Well, I have spent um, a whole year now with uh, John McCallion's collection of games, 2,000 games, really having to go through them and get to know some of them. So the the funny thing is the game that I wanted most to have doesn't come inside a box. It, would, it isn't in John's collection. It's a LARP, live-action role-play. Always wanted to, to go LARPing, to play a LARP. And this year I got that chance uh, a couple times to try out a LARP and uh, get that feeling um, – to uh, do some role playing, I've done acting in the past, so I guess maybe it was like the acting bug has come back to to bite me. Uh, I enjoyed it, even though the the LARPs I, I participated in were really combat heavy. People think of that as that's what it's all about, but I want to explore freeform LARPing and uh, to get away from combat, to get more into exploration of, of behaviors and attitudes and roles. I'm looking forward to doing some of that in the upcoming year with a local theater group. We're going to try and get a LARPing group, preform LARPing group together and uh, have some fun with that. So I got into LARPing. I want to do some more. Um, I don't think my uh, acquisition uh, thirst will be uh, sated anytime soon. I'm going to keep at it. Chris, what was your most disordered disorder yes my disorders were mass and many this year and looking back at the list as anthony said it's really hard to figure out which one was the most mind-blowing for this year but i know in particular the one that really kind of stuck with me was the expansion for the castles of mad king ludwig called secrets now Really, why I wanted this game, and it's because when I played the original base game, I really felt like there was something missing. And it kind of drove me nuts over the several, several weeks that it was supposed to come out, debuted at Essen, but it wasn't here in the U.S., and it finally got here at the U.S., and I was finally able to get it picked up, and I was finally able to get it to the table, and it finally, finally satisfied this acquisition disorder that I really did have because I really love Suburbia, and I really enjoyed Castles, but it just it bugged me that there was something missing. Now, this expansion does satisfy that for a great deal. Now, I'm still not sure. I want to get a couple more plays in until I finally feel satisfied with it. But just the fact that you have a game that's finally complete with an expansion, and especially here, because you're building a castle. But what is a castle without a moat? Or a drawbridge. You really need these things to really make a great castle, not to mention the secret passageways. So I really felt like Castles of Mad King Ludwig was an incomplete game, a game that I really wanted to love, a game that I was kind of really feeling bad about. So with this expansion, it satisfies so many things, and I'm so happy to have it, and I'm so happy to actually finally complete that game. So that is my acquisition disorder for 2015, and finally... It's satisfied. And now I don't have to worry about it until 2016. <laughs> Do you know I've been reading online? There are some people that are actually making uh, pledges, resolutions not to buy any games 
uh, in 2016 till they played all the games that they have. That's adorable. Uh, <laughs> and we are not those people. <laughs> yeah. No. But if you if you are one of us and you want you want some help, please keep listening because we need some help. <laughs> and by the way, if those people are not going to buy this, they can buy those games. Just send it to us, and we'll just keep them. You know, somewhere. You know, somewhere <laughs> safe. And you know, we'll, we'll take care of them. All right. So that is our acquisition disorders for 2015. All the games we wanted, all the games that we had to have, and for some of us, the games that we finally got to the table, and for other ones, the games that we still have rage about because we haven't gotten to the table yet, we really want to play it. And now, At the Table with BGA. All right, so for At the Table for 2015, we wanted to talk about the games that we actually got to the table, games that we love, games that we want to get back to the table again and again, and maybe just games that really should play a major part in our lives, games that we really want to make a lifestyle game, even if they're not a lifestyle game. So here are the games for 2015. Anthony, why don't you start us off? All right, so this is a game that... I stumbled across in a, a game store in New York before I moved that I'd only seen a couple of things floating around about. I didn't actually realize the designers were people I knew, and I didn't realize that the game had the mechanics that I love <laughs> kind of mashed together, and that's The Voyages of Marco Polo. So I kind of just bought this on a lark because it looked cool, and somebody in the game store mentioned it was a lot like Terra Mystica and Kingsburg, which it's really not, but the way they described it sounded pretty cool. And I have played it more than any other Euro this year by far, maybe three times as much as any other Euro I've played. And it's it's up there for the most that I've played any game this year. And I'm very happy about that. Voyages of Marco Polo is just infinitely replayable because it is worker placement with dice. So it's always different. Each of those player powers is immensely powerful, but immensely different. There are some new player powers floating around out there from a recent Essen mini expansion that I haven't gotten my hands on yet, but it means that the designers are expanding it, which has me very excited as well because there's so much cool stuff here you could add. And these are the guys who did Zulkin, the Mayan calendar. So, you know, they're Gears are always turning, haha, <laughs> get it, uh, about different ways to do this type of game. And I feel like there's going to be more cool stuff coming for this particular game, hopefully in the next year or two. I know this game has been hard to find, so hopefully Z-Man's working on that reprint here for the people in the U.S. But I know every time I take it to game night, it gets played. If not by me, someone else takes it and wanders off and plays it. Uh, so my copy's probably been played a dozen times just in the last couple months. And I've played it, you know, half that or more. Haven't gotten through each of the player powers just yet. Trying to get to that point so I can see how each of them plays differently. And it is extremely different. Uh, it definitely helps, too, because when you're teaching people the game, you can kind of coach them a little bit on how each different player power plays. Because if you play it wrong, it isn't quite as much fun the first time through. But even still, uh, so much cool stuff here. By far one of my favorite Euros of the year, possibly one of my favorite games of the year, and the one that I'm the happiest to have picked up. Um, kind of on a lark, and it's you know at the top of my list so far for 2015. Daniel, what about you? What was your big uh, at-the-table game for this year? Uh, so for me, the game that not only hit the table, but kept hitting the table just over and over again in various forms is Apocalypse World and its variants. Uh, you guys probably remember that I've talked about Apocalypse World and some of its variants a couple of times. It's a it's a role playing game with a very simple rule set. It's narrative driven, uh, and it you know keeps the numbers down. 
so those of you who you know played D and D and ended up feeling like you spent a couple hours you know essentially being an accountant, this is the the kind of game you want to move towards. Uh, and Apocalypse World has done something really remarkable, which is it seems to have latched on a onto a part of the role playing game uh, audience that really didn't feel like it had a home before, and now there are hundreds of variants of Apocalypse World. Uh, just this year, I've played Vanilla Apocalypse World. I've played Avatar World. Well, whoop, sorry, that's not its name anymore. Its current name is Legend of the Elements, which is a Wuja-style game heavily influenced but not based upon Avatar The Last Airbender. Um, there's Urban Shadows, which is a sort of vampire werewolf in the city kind of game. Uh, and there's just tons and tons of variants. I think one of the most interesting is Monster Hearts, which is a game where you play as like a paranormal teen romance in a high school. So it's a bunch of supernatural beings in the high school and it's just silly fun. Um, the great thing about this game, though, and all of its variants is it's so narrative focused and so powerful in creating narrative uh, that it's really hard not to have a fun time and it's really easy to get swept up into it. It's easy to play, it's easy to GM, and apparently it's easy to modify to fit pretty much any flavor of game you want, right? There's Mass Effect variants, there's, uh, there's a variant for aliens, right? which is particularly interesting because then you have a move that activates only when you die. So whatever you want to do, Apocalypse World can help you do it or in some form or another. Uh, and I think we've played, no kidding, I think we've played eight variants of this game over the last year, me and my RPG group. And almost every single arc has been deeply satisfying to me. Uh, many of them, we just hit the natural conclusion point. Right? We, we just did that with our Legend of Elements, where our epic spanning narrative just hit the point point. went, all right, well done all. This game feels actually done with. Uh, and now we're moving on. Uh, so that's that's uh, my at the table of the year. Apocalypse World and all of its variants, which characterize pretty much what I do every week on my weekends. Yeah. So, Daniel, it's like Avatar The Last Airbender, but it isn't really exactly the same as Avatar The Last Airbender. Correct. Legends of the Elements uh, <laughs> made some – and they made some modifications and introduced some ideas that aren't in that show, right? So and, it doesn't it doesn't tread on the IP. Right, and that show cannot take credit for the whole idea of people controlling elements with wuja abilities because that's an ancient concept, right? That's all over the place. Oh, there you go. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so cool. that's uh, my at the table of the year. Drew, how about yours? Well, my biggest uh, at the table experience for the whole year came with Anthony as my partner. We played in a pandemic tournament at uh, a local convention. It was uh, one of the most satisfying, uh, thrilling games I have played. Um, certainly one of the highlights of the year. Sim I, I guess one of the reasons was somebody else took all the time to set up the game board, and when it was over, we just walked away and somebody else put all the game away. I mean, you know, what's not to like about that? But the fact that there were a bunch of teams, two-person teams, all with identical setups and having to face the exact same cards, uh, a wonderful test of uh, planning and foresight and not so much luck because everybody had to go through the same thing. Anthony and I went pretty far. We beat, uh, we lasted longer than a couple pairs of people. Didn't, didn't make it near to the end, but I enjoyed it. it, it I would love to be part of tournaments again. 
uh, at conventions, especially if they didn't cost a lot of money, which large conventions do. Um, I would love to do some more local conventions and uh, hop in some tournaments, pandemic tournament. If uh, you if there's one at a convention near you, jump in there. It's a blast. Okay. Yeah, that was definitely one of the, the the highlights for me too. That was it was a lot of fun, even though we didn't get very far. But um, man, I'd play any game if someone would set it up and clean it up for me, though. <laughs> um, so, Chris, please tell us what was your uh, favorite game uh, favorite game experience at the table this year? Well, first off, I got a kind of stand by Anthony with Marco Polo. I got a chance to play this game again and you know, it's my second time playing this game and I really do love the game. It's outstanding. It was on my list, but since Anthony took that, I didn't want to kind of jump on his boat, but nonetheless, a second vote for The Voyages of Marco Polo, outstanding game, beautiful euro. But my at the table that really kind of knocked my socks off would have to be Arcadia Quest. Now, Arcadia Quest is a game we've been talking about for quite some time, and we've had some great experiences playing that at Gen Con. We were all after this great game, and I think we pretty much somewhat all picked it up in one way or the other. And recently, the game has been so enjoyable that I actually backed the Inferno campaign to a level which I can't publicly announce on the podcast because it's just way too much. In particular, I really wanted to talk about a recent campaign I got a chance to play with Diana and Ed and Sean. We actually got to play several games back to back and we're kind of, you know, getting to the final round and it was so great. We had new players at the game. They picked it up really easy. Everyone had a good time. And especially in a game where you're attacking each other, there's usually some sort of like animosity or I'll get you back kind of thing. But the game is so smart about how the attacking takes place. It really doesn't penalize you that much. It's cutesy, but it's smart. It's a dungeon delve, but it's co-op. And yet at the same time, it's player versus player. And it really is such an enjoyable adventure, whether you're just kind of drafting the characters or you're kind of playing really strategically or you're kind of setting up the right combo so that the next round you really got a great team going into the next match it's an outstanding game it's a lot of fun whether you play the base game or you play beyond the grave or the upcoming inferno you're really going to enjoy arcadia quest i did so that is our 2015 best moments at the table we highly recommend trying out these games at your table and inviting friends we play a lot of games at the table at bga and for us to say these games even a year later, really kind of impact us and really kind of stick in our mind and something that we want to play in 2016 is saying a lot. So check out these games and we'll talk about them more in 2016, I'm sure. And now BGA's feature review. So for our feature review, we wanted to talk about the best of 2015. Now, for each one of us, something in board gaming really stuck out for us. So instead of just doing this is the best and us all throwing kind of one or two games at it, we wanted to talk about the category that really stuck out for us because it really represented our gaming for 2015. And then we wanted to talk about the games and the experiences that came along with that great category that really represents the gaming industry and especially the fun that we have at the table together. 
So to start off, Anthony, why don't you take us to your best of for 2015? Okay, so for me, one of the, especially with a child born in the last year, um, one of the things that I really got into this year was solo gaming. And I hadn't really before that. I'd played, dabbled a little bit in 2014. Um, I knew that some of my games played solo and my son liked to play with me, but it wasn't like a, a heavy thing that I did. Uh, but this year I really did get into it a lot more just because I wanted to keep playing games and I just couldn't always get out of the house. So I got a little bit more into it. I played through the solo variants and most of the games I owned. I started picking up some solo games. And as I found out, there's a huge community of solo gamers. You'll see that by basically any game that has a solo variant will always be on the hotness list on the left. Uh, if you're ever wondering why the Lord of the Rings card game is so high up, it's because it has such a huge solo community around it. Um, and the other thing I realized is that 2015 was a really good year for solo games. Uh, there was a good half a dozen solid games that were released this year that were built to play solitaire. Um, and I previously picked up games like Friday, which is fantastic from Freeman Freeze. And I played Imperial Settlers all year long with my son, the solo variant on that game. Um, but there was a few games in particular I picked up that I really enjoyed. And then one game that I felt really stood out as the best solo experience of the year. Um, and for this, I'm looking at games that were standalone solo designed to play that way. There were a few games that came out that had really good, strong solo variants and components to them. Um, but these are the ones that were designed that way. So first up, honorable mention uh, and nod to the two new Oniverse games that were released this year. First, Sylveon, and then Castellion. Both of these games, sequels to Onirim, were fantastic. I still love both of them. I play them frequently. Sylveon is kind of a tower defense style game, and Castellion is more of a tableau builder, um, architectural type of game. Both of them are very unique and interesting, but also in this Oni dreamscape universe. And while not as hard as Oni Rim, they are very engaging and have a lot of expansions that come out of the box. So both very, very good buys if you play solo games. Um, Warhammer Quest Adventure card game, also very cool. Not designed as solo, but plays solo great. It's a good alternative if you like Lord of the Rings, but don't like all the deck building. But the one that really stuck out for me, the big, big solo game that I was most blown away by and was very happy to have found a copy of at Gen Con because I was not smart enough to back it on Kickstarter, was Hostage Negotiator. Got a chance to meet the designer at Gen Con, got a chance to play through it, um, have played it many, many times since, played through each of the packs, have a couple new ones coming in the mail from the second Kickstarter, hopefully here in the next few weeks. It's a really fun game. It's got a lot of really unique elements, kind of some deck building there, a lot of uh, resource management. There's a heavy luck element, but you can mitigate it in a lot of different ways, which I think is very important to a solo game. You need to have a little bit of luck in there. It's really good, and I really enjoy it. If if you're looking for something thematic, um, but not necessarily on the fantasy side, more in the real world, Hostage Negotiator is really good. Hostage Negotiator has a lot of things going for it. It's going to keep expanding, and it is one of those solo experiences that is unique in almost every possible way. Uh, but all those games are great. If you were into solo games, 2015 was a very good year for you. If you're just thinking about getting into them, there's a lot of stuff you can go back and look at. So there you have it. My pick for best solo game of 2015, Hostage Negotiator. Uh, you, you know, about a week ago, Anthony, I, uh, I think I sent it to you. Um, there was a, a news link that we sent out on our, 
our Twitter feed at BGA Podcast from Inverse.com. A beautiful article, uh, The Quiet Meditative Joy of Playing a Board Game by Yourself. Remember, I think I sent that to you. But but it does show that this is where this is the big niche in gaming now. And this article is especially skewed toward video gamers. We've been noticing a lot of migration from video into board games. Video gaming being such a solitary thing that um, it's great. You know, there's a lot of joys to be had playing board games by yourself, too. And it's cool that you're uh, finding a lot of joy in that. Yeah. I mean, I think especially now with a lot of video games are coming out that don't have solo gaming experiences built in anymore. Um, the the new Star Wars game, for example, very controversial. The solo version of that is almost non-existent. Um, so board games are starting to offer some of that, and it's coming out more, and you're seeing more games with that variant, which I think is awesome because I often want to pick up a game, as you've heard from my acquisition disorder list, and I can't always get it to the table right away with other people. So if I can play it by myself... That's often a tipping point. If it's a solo game, I sometimes will pick it up when I wouldn't have otherwise. All right, uh, Daniel, what about you? What is your um, best of for 2015? All right, yeah. So uh, for me, I'm going to be looking at the coolest gimmicks of 2015. And we saw a lot of expansion of the way board games are put together uh, this year. Uh, we saw an integration of uh, digital media into our traditional media uh, with games like XCOM and Alchemist, right, integrating this app stuff into gameplay more and more. So we got a look at the sort of the, the hybridized gaming future, if you, if you will. Uh, and that was pretty exciting. We've seen uh, some really cool sort of decks games coming out. So we've got Flip 'em Up, which, you know, is a little gimmicky, but also awesome. So, you know, points there. Uh, but for me, the coolest gimmick of all 2015 is going to come from the little known, or at least didn't get much press when it came out, a uh, Kickstarter game that I mentioned a little while ago called Fall of Magic. Uh, and Fall of Magic is a n- very narratively driven role-playing game with almost no rules. It's pretty much all narrative, all keywords and sort of improv cues. Uh, but the thing that makes Fall of Magic, I think, special uh, is that the entire adventure takes place on a uh, a printed scroll, a cloth scroll that you will roll out on your table. You have these sort of metal markers you move around. And it gives a feeling of sort of like a fantasy map, right? You know, you roll it across the table and you can kind of imagine the characters plotting their way along it. Uh, And it's just a great move away from the idea that board games and role-playing games have to be made out of a certain set of materials, right? They must be made from cardboard and ink and that sort of thing. Or it must just, you know, a book and then this black and white sort of uh, table that you keep track of on the side to keep track of all your statistics and that sort of thing. Uh, I think that Fall of Magic represents something that, you know, we could have we could use for every now and then, which is a way to shake things up, to remind us that we can use different materials in different ways and approach the same uh, questions and the same ideas from different angles and come up with a really satisfying gaming experience. Uh, so for me, that is the coolest gimmick of 2015. Maybe gimmick. Gimmick's almost too dismissive a term, but I couldn't think of a better word. So it's the coolest gimmick of 2015. I'll accept gimmick. I think that's a good term for it. Um, in fact, didn't we do an episode earlier this year, a feature about gimmicks, gimmicks that we liked? You know, I think we did. Yeah. So it, it, gimmicks are always going to have a place in gaming. I just think it's another word for original. 
So, yeah, yeah. It's something material that sets the game apart, right? Exactly. So gimmicks are cool. Bring them on. I think so. Well, that's uh, my feature, my coolest X of 2015. Drew, how about you? Well, I'm going just the opposite of gimmicky. Um, since I moved to Bennington, been more into family games, the kind of games that everybody can play at the table together and enjoy. So family games are a big part of my gaming experience now. That's the category I'm going to touch on. I think some very fine ones came out uh, the past year. You mentioned one of them, Daniel. Uh, flick them up. I, I love gimmicks. Gimmicks are great family games like, um, well, the game that used to be called Rampage. What's it called? Terror in Meeple City now. A gimmicky game. Physical and active. Yeah, gimmicks are great for families to enjoy. So that's one of my favorite games from this past year. Cacao is another good uh, family game from 2015 because it's about chocolate. We love chocolate. I like dark chocolate especially. But anyway, the game that I would call the best of, the best family game for the year is Steampunk Rally. Steampunk is one of those themes from the past couple of years that's caught on. It's popular. It's, it's a growing genre, a growing category, I guess you could say, of games. But more than that, it's like a middle school science class gone hilariously wrong. There's a lot of pseudoscience, you could say, a lot of historical scientific figures involved in the game. But it's almost like all of these great scientists of the past have joined an episode of Wacky Races because you're you're trying to build transportation, trying to build a set of wheels. It's got cards, it's got dice, it's got science. I think it's at a level where it could be considered a gateway game for kids of a certain age and inclination. It would make a great gift uh, to uh, middle school children, boys and girls. I just like the feeling I get from playing it. There isn't really much I can do to describe it that would convince you one way or the other. Just go out and buy it, try it, play with your family, and enjoy. Steampunk Rally, I think, is the best family game of the year. Chris, what is your best of? So my best of is the best art or artistic design for 2015. Now, if you know about my likes and dislikes, I love great art in a game. Now, usually, being a big Euro gamer. Oftentimes, my fellow Eurogamers kind of look down on me because I'm always looking for a great artistic presentation that's not always found in Euro games or abstract games. And while mechanics do make up for that in Euro games, there is something about artistic design, and especially in 2015, the bar has really been raised. So, what I'm talking about here is not just great pictures, but world building. Games that have art that's evocative, that's passionate, that really gets you into the feel. It kind of provides a narrative even before you play the game. It gives an explanation of what's going to happen. It gives a flow to the game. So long before you get into the real depth of strategy, things make sense. The cards, the board, the miniatures, everything about the game kind of speaks to the world that you're going to play into and kind of hints at the future strategies that you're going to employ. So I want to talk about some honorable mentions and then get into the game of the year. So first off, Blood Rage. Now, Blood Rage does some amazing world building. Now, the board is nice, but the miniatures are amazing. The artistic design here really sets this game apart from anything that we've seen recently. Now, Cool Mini or Not does some great miniatures, 
But the Vikings here in this game, the monsters here in this game, the quality of miniatures here are really outstanding. And when you're playing a game that's called Blood Rage, you should feel the action. And that's what's outstanding about these miniatures. You could see the flow. You could see the movement. The weapons are large. They, the monsters are dramatic. And it really adds a lot to this game. Now, on the opposite side, there is the gallerist. Now, the gallerist is outstanding because the graphic design, the artistic design, matches the game. This game is all about owning an art gallery, marketing the art, selling art, purchasing the art, and the game itself, all the graphic design, all the artwork, the cards, the meeples that kind of come into play here. Everything about the game is that high modern art. So when you sit down and play this game, you know what you're looking at. And as you watch the board kind of develop with all these cards and actions and abilities, you're really kind of getting in the mindset of being this art dealer. So great design there. Now I also want to talk about another great game that is a little hard to talk about without giving anything away. And that's Time Stories. Now Time Stories comes with the Asylum But it also has the Marcy case, which I'm not really looking into yet, but I've heard some great things about it, and I've seen some artwork, and I'm just kind of blown away by it. Now, without getting into any spoilers, the artwork in this game is really going to tell you a lot about the world you're inhabiting. And each different case, each different kind of expansion box has a different artist. Now, Asylum alone is amazing. The artwork of the characters really are evocative of this world you're getting yourself involved into. And you really do feel like you're this character. You're kind of jumping in there. The art that you're going to be looking at is going to offer clues in this game. I'm not going to say anything else, but it's amazing to look at. So I really would recommend getting this game to the table as soon as possible. Now, finally, I want to mention two honorable mentions for games that just came out or going to come out. Tricarion, a great game about magicians and illusionists in the late 1800s, 1900s. And what they're putting together here is a beautiful world, really kind of world building where the board itself is outstanding. The artwork is great. It's evocative of that time. It really kind of stands out. And of course, Scythe. Now, Scythe is the Jamie Stegmeier Stolmeyer game that's all about this great artwork that he took and developed this outstanding kind of post-World War I alternate universe. Amazing. It's so amazing that I actually backed the level that would give me the art book. That's how much I love this art, and I can't wait to get this game to the table. But my winner for 2015 has to be Mysterium. Now, Mysterium takes a couple of great other games and kind of squeezes it into one. So first off, you're getting your Dixit artwork. Now, this is Javier Colette's newest, greatest game. Now, I talked about him last year as my favorite when he did Abyss, and Abyss was beautiful and really created a universe. Now, Mysterium is all about solving this murder that this ghost is kind of giving you information for. So the game has to have that slightly creepy, mysterious element, and everything about this game has that. Every piece that kind of goes into this game, whether it's the boards, whether it's the psychics in this game, whether it's the card holders in this game, really kind of gives you a feel of this mysterious world that you're kind of playing Clue 
but using some outstanding artwork and trying to decipher the dreams that are given to you by the ghost. Outstanding artwork, outstanding components, really kind of builds a world right there for you. And if you were at Gen Con, you got to see this great booth. So they really knew what they were doing when they putting this to game together. It's not just a game. It's not just experience. It's a world. And it has living characters. And it has beautiful artwork that you're going to think about for days and days to come. So for 2015, the best artwork and artistic design has got to be Mysterium. So that is our best of 2015 feature. We really hope that you were able to get these games to the table in 2015. If you haven't, please check them out in 2016. They're really going to offer you a great gameplay and really kind of touch on the essence of what makes board gaming so great. And now, our final round. So guys, we have come down to our final final round of the year, 2015. Let's look back on some of our favorite gaming moments from the past year just the whole experience not the game itself but just the time that we had uh, the one that stuck in my mind came actually toward the end of the year on uh, international game day held at our local library it's uh, it's an event now that is being uh, spread around the world every november not just in america but library associations in many other countries are joining in they're doing international events like a big Minecraft uh, contest connecting everyone together, Um, uh, other telephone contests where libraries call each other and pass information on. But the important part is a chance for bringing games into the library and bringing the community in to join with us. We saw a lot of new faces that we don't normally see at our gaming group. They came into the library and played. Um, John McCallion, part of his library was this gigantic chess set. So I brought that in, set it up on the table. That was a hit. Families and children love playing chess on a big uh, chess board. So libraries are great places for community to come together and play games. I'm looking forward to working with our local library at building it up next year, even bigger than this. And I encourage uh, you three guys to work with your local libraries next year and all our listeners, too. Be a part of this. International Game Day in November. It's uh, one of my fondest memories from gaming this year. Anthony, what was yours? Uh, yeah, so for me it was nothing uh, quite as altruistic as <laughs> gaming at the library. Um, it was a combination of things, actually. As the last time all four of us were together to game was at Gen Con, which was awesome. Um, but of all the things we did at Gen Con, I'm going to have to go with the slightly more capitalist, materialistic side of things. <laughs> and that's that... Um, the big massive line I got to stand in on the first day when I woke up at 5.30 in the morning to get my early entry pass to get into the to the hall. Um, it was, A, it's the first time I've been to Gen Con. is really the first time I've been to any convention that big. But then getting to go in a little early and just kind of explore and see what everything looked like and not have to stand on any crazy lines. But really the key moment in all of that was... I think I was standing at the line at the Asmodee booth when it happened is when the doors opened to everybody else and you just kind of hear a rumbling and a bit of a roar in the background. And then suddenly you can't really breathe or move because you're surrounded by so many people. Then you kind of get that. I feel like if I was in that crowd outside and just kind of wandered in, I'd be like, oh, this is really crowded. But being in the space empty and being rushed by like 50,000 people 
you really understand how freaking big that thing is. And it's no wonder that they're moving into the football stadium next year. Um, so for me, that was one of the most memorable moments of the year in terms of gaming. Um, and the whole weekend was just, obviously it was just so much fun. We did so much cool stuff. Um, and most of my strong memories, you know, at least especially with you guys were from that, you know, week in Indianapolis, but getting rushed by all those other gamers, you know, that was the one that really stuck out. What, not uh, staying up till two in the morning, trying to play Tragedy Looper <laughs> while we're all dead tired? <laughs> hey, yeah, that was bad. I did bad. That was no, that was our last game together so far. I felt so now. cool. I was like, got it. <laughs> Done. <laughs> I'm a you genius. Know. I know. Yeah, because you were up against me and I was not doing very good. Well, you were exhausted. You'd been running around doing stuff way earlier than we had and I had a couple hours of sleep on you, so that's not really a fair competition. Yeah, well, I'm glad I'm glad you got that experience though because you obviously loved it. So <laughs> What about you, Daniel? What was yours? Oh, uh, well, my my favorite's actually going to be around Gen Con as, uh, as well. Uh, and, you know, I know for a lot of us, you know, the thing that really, you know, brings us to gaming or really you know, makes it pop as a hobby, right, as opposed to, like, I don't know, model building or any of the n- number of the other equally valid, equally time-consuming and probably equally expensive hobbies one could have uh, is the idea, you know, of sharing it with people you love, right, and it becomes this very social activity. Uh, and... Uh, my girlfriend came with us to Gen Con. Uh, for those of you who don't know that, I don't know if I've mentioned that yet. Uh, and she's the one who took all the pictures of us and that sort of thing. And she's in a couple of them herself. Uh, and just you know, she she's now she's always been pro me being pro gaming, but never really been a gamer herself. Uh, but when she got in there, she kind of got swept up with it and started getting really interested. She kept disappearing for thirty minutes at a time to go play some demo or watch some game uh and when we got back from gen con she she even like she initiated gameplay with me and that was so cool like she's like hey you want to play this game that we got because i want to play this game i was just yeah yeah let's do this uh and so that was that was an exciting time for me uh so just all the times i got to play you know play games with you know the woman i love and the gen con facilitated that though it did give me the flu and then her the flu so you know maybe gen con and i are like we're even even right now but yeah so that's uh those are my favorite gaming moments of 2015 i forgot gen con made us all sick maybe i'll take mine back (laughs) (laughs) so sick yeah yeah that's right that sucked (laughs) all right first time i've ever seen her get sick too it was amazing she's been in houses when everyone else in the entire house just got sick in sequence and, you know, she used to be a nurse, so she's taking care of everybody. Didn't, you know, even get sick at all. But the Gen Con bug took her down. It was, it was brutal, man. It was brutal. Well, uh, but, the, you know, those, those times, and in general, right, all the time I got to spend is sitting around the table with good friends and family and loved ones. That's just, you know, that's what it's all about to me. Chris, how about you? What is, what's your favorite moment? Man, it's so hard to just pick one. Honestly, like everybody said – Gen Con, what an amazing experience. And I could talk about meeting all of these great board gaming designers like Ted Elsback. I got to meet Ted Elsback. Or meeting all these great people in the media that I've looked up to and watched and listened for so long. Like, you know, Tom Vassell and Z Garcia and Sam Healy and Eric Sumner or all of the other great podcasters. Or we were sitting at a restaurant and uh, Joe Eddie walked by. And I'm like, that's Joe Eddie. (laughs) 
So it was really, really, really a great time. But honestly, the best moment for me for 2015 has to be the surprising opportunity to have fans of the show, fellow gamers that listen to Board Gamers Anonymous come up to us and go, hey, I listen to you guys. You guys are great. And just to have that opportunity to connect with people on the other side of this podcast that we're recording really was such a great moment because, you know, here we are, a originally New York kind of podcast, still kind of tri-state, quad-state, you know, podcast, and going out to Indianapolis, Indiana, and meeting people that listen to us every week and having those listeners kind of connect with us in person was really such a a wonderful experience. We do this podcast for you, and it's so great to actually kind of meet you. And really, that was such a phenomenal experience for me. And I, 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 you know, it's just it still sticks with me to this day. Man, great memories. Well, this is a great way to to wrap up the year with our final final round. So now that we talked about everything from 2015, let's look towards the future in 2016. And while we still have a few weeks left, we want you to keep in contact with us. We want to hear from you. As we say each and every week, this podcast is about bringing great gamers to the table and enjoying that experience. So please keep in contact with us. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Let us know where we can expand and where you want to see Board Gamers Anonymous reach out to you. So there are many ways to do that, and some of the great ways are through our social media accounts. So keep in contact with us on Facebook. We'd love to get your likes. Also, keep in contact with us on Twitter. Drew puts out some amazing content each and every day, and we like to see you guys retweet that. The more we're out there, the more gamers come to the table, especially BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our website. We're going to be putting some more blog articles out there for you. So check in with that site and get to read some of these great content. We also have a guild on Board Game Geek and our Patreon account. Our Patreon backers have been outstanding in supporting us, bringing this podcast to you for so long. And we're so grateful for them for the 2015 year. If you want to hear more Board Gamers Anonymous out there in the world, whether it's on audio, video, or written, please consider backing us. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. The more ratings we get on iTunes, the higher we rank in the ratings, and that really does kind of give us more exposure to bring new board gamers to the table. We're also on Stitcher, so please rank us there as well. So until next time, this is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is and Drew. we'll save you a seat at our podcast table in 2016. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? 
Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.